It's episode 7, and the Temp Fans podcast is still a thing. Who would have thought it way back in April when we struggled through our debut episode on ESG? At the time, in order to make things seem manageable, we talked about season 1 and said it would have 6 episodes, because it was hard to imagine actually reaching such a milestone. And yet here we are, entering the second part of the David Bowie triple header, and blithely leaping over what should have been the season finale. Season schmeezen. We'll stop when we get bored. Or sick or captured by the rising forces of fascism. Anyway, hopefully you're here because you've already listened to episode 6, in which we probed the first third of David Bowie's discography. Or perhaps you're listening to them backwards, because that's the kind of rebel you are. Or if you've just stumbled across us at random, allow me to take a moment to explain what it is we do here. Temporary Fandoms is a group of music nerds who listen to complete discographies for fun. We started life on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash tempfans, and this year we launched a steadily growing podcast. Actually, I don't know if it's steadily growing, I just said that because it sounded grand. Either way, we strongly recommend you listen on Spotify, where you'll find the podcast edited into a playlist with tracks from all the albums we're talking about. And the easiest way to find that is via our host's Beat Rehab. Just go to beat.rehab.com slash temp fans. Enough of that. You've got a shitload of great records to listen to, and a load of enthusiastic temp fans who are keen to talk about them. So join us for, yes, episode 7, which also happens to be David Bowie, part 2. Hello, uh, I'm Ewan, which is something I've neglected to say at the start of the last few episodes, and... I'm Nick. Um, you've heard us before. Um, this is part two of our David Bowie trifecta, triumvirate, uh, triple uh, pods. Um, hopefully you've listened to the first one. It was really long. It was awesome. Thanks to Ben, Lyle and Emily for joining us on that one. Um, you should know the deal by now. You can find us on beat.rehab. Um, listen, subscribe, like things, leave comments. Uh, be really, really appreciated. Today, we are moving from um, what some people say was Bowie's sort of early cool uh, period with Ziggy and uh, Space Oddity and all of those things. And we're looking to make some ch 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 changes and move on elsewhere. That was terrible. I might edit that out. <laughs> but let's see who we have today. Um, uh, Steve, how are you doing and what are you going to be covering? Hey everyone, uh, I shall be covering the not-so-insignificant Berlin period from 1976 to 1979, covering Low, Heroes and Lodger. Awesome, thank you very much. And returning to the pod, we've got Zoe. You last heard her shouting Stormzy, Stormzy, Stormzy. Um, Zoe, hey, how are you doing and what have you got for us today? Hi, I'm doing the 80s, so we've got, oh god, I've got to remember all the albums. Scary Masters and Super Creeps. Uh, Let's Dance, and then we have Tonight, and then Never Let Me Down, ironic name for that album. Um, <laughs> there we go. So that's our four for the 80s. Perfect. Thank you very much. Um, so like we did in the last part, we're going to keep this quick. Um, after I finish talking, you're going to hear Steve talking through the Berlin period, and then you'll hear Zoe. If you're on Spotify, listening on the playlist, obviously there's also chosen tracks to go with this and we'll all come back together at the end to tell us 
tell us, tell you what we think. Um, incidentally, if there's an extra voice at the end, it's because we're waiting for someone who may or may not turn up. So um, see you after this. David Bowie's so-called Berlin period of 1976 to 1979 is rightly regarded as one of his most creatively fruitful periods. Yet it was a period initially defined by his need to escape the trappings of the success he had recently found in the USA. With a Herculean cocaine habit, a disintegrating marriage and ongoing management issues, Bowie hopped off to Europe to record an album with that other bastion of sobriety, Iggy Pop. The recording of Iggy's The Idiot in 1976 allowed Bowie to concentrate on someone else's music and afforded him some room to find a new sound. Somewhat re-energised, he also began work in parallel on what would become his 11th studio album, Low. Brian Eno was drafted in to augment the already stellar backing band, most of whom had featured on Station to Station, not that any of them can remember it, and Tony Visconti returned to production duties after a brief hiatus. What unfolded resulted in an album quite unlike anything Bowie had produced before. After laying down the backing tracks and most of the vocals, everyone decamped from France to West Berlin and installed themselves at the cavernous studios of Hansa to finish things off. The impact of this change can perhaps be mapped to the running order and the A-side-B-side split which dominates the album. Kicking off with instrumental curtain or speed of life, we're immediately into one of Eno's synthscapes and then bang, we hit the electro glam of breaking glass. What follows on side A is a collection of songs detailing Bowie's ever-growing paranoia and internalised isolation. But gone are the lavish persona-powered pop and rock tunes of old. Here we have angularity, aggressive experimentation and almost no regard for radio-friendly unit shifters. And it's not difficult to imagine RCA's reaction to the mostly instrumental side B of Low. Pining for more of those young Americans in golden years, the likes of Warzawa, Art Decade and Weeping Wall must have been like cavemen listening to Einstein. But on tracks like Subterraneans, a song originally intended for inclusion on the soundtrack of The Man Who Fell to Earth, you can immediately hear the seeds of everything from Aphex Twin's ambient works to later album Talk Talk, and in the production of Sound and Visions, it's a sonic template Bowie would often come to revisit. Commercially, Law may not have been as well received upon its initial release, but its legacy very much lives on in both those it inspired and the versions of Bowie that would follow. After touring with Iggy in early 77, Bowie re returned to Hansa Studios with Mr Pop and began work on Iggy's Lust for Life album. Upon completion, Boy was ready to undertake what would become studio album number 12, Heroes. Having lived in Berlin for some time now, Boy had come to appreciate his relative anonymity, allowing him to observe and absorb the political and cultural zeitgeist which surrounded him, but without the glare of celebrity upon him. But there were still lingering problems. Bowie's marriage was disintegrating at speed and he was still struggling to find the mental spaces which allowed him to craft his characters and lyrics. Thankfully, he was again surrounded by many of the players who featured on Low and Lust for Life. And, at the suggestion of Brian Eno, King Crimson guitarist Robert Fripp was brought on board. This was a move which would cement much of the distinctive sonic palette of the Heroes album and what followed. 
Despite the levels of experimentation and the constraints of the recording equipment at the time, most of the takes utilised on each track were actually first takes, with tracks often having to be wiped out to allow the recording of any additional takes. In comparison to Lowe's instrumental opener, Beauty and the Beast is an ominous and edgy track, full of threat. Fripp's signature riffs and Eno's complementary synths becoming an integral part of how the direction of the album would unfold. In his lyrics, Bowie was reflecting not only what was going on inside his head, but also the world taking place right outside the Hansa studio windows. An environment he would capture in the album's unforgettable title track, a song which undeniably sits at the top of Bowie's considerable list of musical achievements. As much a result of Visconti's ingenuity and his use of the studio's acoustics as a tool, Heroes really does sound like nothing else. Crammed with romanticism and imagery, it has a temporal feel, locking the listener into the Cold War Berlin landscape of 1977. Yet even today it still sounds utterly futuristic, with those lyrics losing none of their power. Surely a testament to both the studio and experimentation taking place, and Bowie's incredible vocal delivery. At this point it's noticeable that the risky experimentations previously undertaken on Lowe had been honed and refined to produce longer songs with more solid structure. But the distinctive side A-B concept was in use again, a literal wall between each side. Opening side B is Bowie's homage to Kraftwerk's Florian Schneider, essentially an instrumental because of its vocal treatment, were treated to some killer offbeat Bowie sax and Fripp emulating the sound of an ominous V2 bomber buzzing overhead. This then descends into Sense of Doubt, possibly the bleakest thing Bowie ever recorded. Its descending piano line creating a creepy tense atmosphere above another Eno synthscape. It melts straight into the following track, Moth Garden, potentially the first Japanese ambient track ever written. I wouldn't be surprised if Susumu Yokota was a fan. This too bleeds into its neighbour, Noikon. Filled with synth organs, foghorn sax and menacing guitar lines, it sounds like the soundtrack to the late night streets of Berlin Bowie would often walk. And finally we have The Secret Life of Arabia, an oddly uplifting track which features a more traditional Bowie structure than probably anything else on the album. It's almost disco-grade bassline and hand claps leaving us in a very different place to the one which opened the album and ultimately setting up the album which would follow. Commercially, the Heroes album was better received than Low, but it certainly didn't garner the praise it rightly receives today. It's not perfect by any means, but in all honesty, I don't think there is such a thing as a perfect Bowie album. And Heroes is a better album for it. And finally, we have Lodger, studio album number 13 and part three of the Berlin trilogy. Despite the fact it was actually recorded in Switzerland, and then mixed in New York. Working to an enforced timescale, the Lodger sessions took place between various stages of Bowie's 1978 Isler 2 World Tour and featured the same core musicians as used on Low and Heroes. Except this time Robert Fripp had been replaced by future King Crimson partner and ex-Zappa guitarist Adrian Bellew. Yet structurally, Lodger's quite different. Gone is the B-side instrumental split of Low and Heroes, and we're back to more traditional song structures. Opener Fantastic Voyage features none of the sonic shocks and gymnastics of the previous albums. However, the abrupt fade-outs are back, 
stealing away Bowie's quite astonishing vocals before they can be fully absorbed. Tracks such as African Night Flight and Move On continue an underlying theme of travel and movement, and a world opening up before Bowie. And in Yassassin we can hear more worldly musical influences, with its almost reggae-style backing track replete with Turkish embellishments. It's actually surprisingly addictive, the repeated mantra of Yassassin pulling you into the music. Side A closes out with Red Sails, another stomper powered by a continuous Can-esque beat. It's here that Bellew's guitar starts to come into its own, melding nicely with Eno's synths and Bowie's sax. Side B, as mentioned, does not feature the numerous instrumentals, synonymous with the previous two albums. Instead, we're straight out of the gate with DJ. An odd choice for a single, this track is noticeable for another fantastic take by Adrian Bellew his energetic guitar bringing the meat to a fairly standard Bowie composition. Then we have the juggernaut which is Look Back in Anger, an absolute powerhouse of a track with Dennis Davis and George Murray absolutely hammering their way through from start to finish. This energy continues into the androgynous glam garage of Boys Keep Swinging. Released as a single in the UK, but unsurprisingly not in the USA, it returned Bowie to the top 10, a feat not achieved since Lowe's sound and vision. The track Repetition tries to continue in the same vein, but its elastic guitars and simplistic vocals fail to elevate it to similar heights. For me, this is probably the weakest track on the album. Closing track Red Money is fundamentally a reworking of Iggy and Bowie's Sister Midnight, which features on The Idiot. In my opinion, it lacks the underlying sneer of the Iggy version, but musically it's still superb and rounds off the album nicely. Bowie's repeated, Can you hear me at all? coming across as a message to his paymasters at RCA. Another commercial damp squib, Lodger would in later years begin to gain plaudits for its influence upon the artists who would follow. But despite a sprinkling of killer tracks, for me, it still sits very much behind Low and Heroes when it comes to the Berlin trilogy but these three albums do undoubtedly share a similar chemistry by virtue of the Bowie-Eno-Visconti axis and a quite ridiculously brilliant backing band. Take out any of these elements and I doubt we'd be discussing these albums with anywhere near the sort of reverence that they garner today. Hi, I'm Zoe and I'm here to walk you through 1980s David Bowie. This is the decade where he reinvented himself once again. He also pioneered the music video as an art form and he got really, really rich. Bowie himself referred to this time as his Phil Collins period. I personally feel like that's being a bit too generous to Phil Collins, but when you start the decade with scary monsters and end it with Never Let Me Down, there might be a tiny grain of truth in what he said about himself. Still, there's plenty to appreciate along the way, and a fair bit to roll your eyes at too. I've got four albums for you, Scary Monsters and Super Creeps, Let's Dance, Tonight, and Never Let Me Down. 
So let's take a closer look at the album Scary Monsters and Super Creeps. It was released in 1980. At that time, David Bowie would have been 33. And it was also the year of his divorce from Angie Bowie. It was his 14th studio album following the Berlin Trilogy. Many critics have called it his last great album. I know what they're trying to say when they say this. I don't necessarily agree with this take, but I understand what they mean because it has a particular clarity of purpose and vision. Or maybe it's because it sounds like what people expect a David Bowie album should sound like. Tony Visconti is back, Brian Eno is not. By all accounts, there was a conscious effort to make an album that balanced artistic expression with commercial appeal. This album sounds interesting, it's never boring, there's loads of technical details. It's been said that this album is the encapsulation of his 70s era, but I see it as something else again. I see it as his take on post-punk and new wave. It is, though, a definitive line in the sand between Ziggy, the Thin White Duke, and what comes next. The main thing about David Bowie is that he always had such amazing players at his disposal. On this, we have Chuck Hammer's layered guitar synth work. We've got Robert Fripp's unmistakable guitar presence. Longtime collaborator Carlos Alomar plays with this rhythm section of Dennis Davis and George Murray for the very last time on a Bowie album. We've even got Pete Townsend on Because You're Young. There's lots of interesting people on this album. I would encourage you to go and find out more about the supporting players, as we often forget about them as we bask in the charisma of David. To be fair, David does get his sax out on this, but I get the sense that the players really helped bring this particular vision to life. It kicks off with It's No Game, number one. Michi Hirota, she performed in theatre and she is the Japanese female vocalist on this track. She was also on the cover of a Sparks album. This track is hugely influential. I can think of many, many bands who've taken this as a template for their whole careers. Have a listen and see how many contemporary bands spring to mind. You can even list them in a comment on the Facebook group and we can argue over it. What I really like about this album is that it's thematic. There's a continuum with its reference to Major Tom on Ashes to Ashes. The self-reference makes you think that there's a bigger plan or vision, that there's a Bowie-verse. As well as his own songs, there's a Tom Verlaine cover on here in the form of Kingdom Come. David Bowie was not averse to a cover, for better or for worse, and luckily this is better. It's also worth mentioning that this was the age of the music video. Bowie was very connected to the visual and he was really at the forefront of this. Ashes to Ashes was the most expensive music video ever made at the time. Uh, he worked with David Mallett, who did so many of those 80s music videos and loads of those big stadium live in concert type things. Bowie went down to the Blitz Club and got himself some new romantics to be his extras. You can see Steve Strange from Visage in this video. Throughout David Bowie's musical output, there is a thread. Seeing as we're talking about David Bowie, let's make it a golden thread. You can find it in Space Oddity, and here it is again all over this album. Even as a young child, I picked up on that feeling that he seems to be able to invoke with his music. A kind of melancholic longing, sort of like a yearning for a place that you haven't been or doesn't actually exist. It's kind of loneliness, but kind of a happy loneliness. How does he do it? It's not just flinging a bunch of minor chords together. It's magic, I tell you. Let's take a look at our next album, Let's Dance, 1983. First up, I have to say, if you weren't sentient at the time, this album was huge. It was everywhere. It ushered in the status of megastar for David. When David Bowie approached Nile Rodgers, do I really have to explain who he is at this point in time? Probably not. To produce this album, he gave him the following brief. He said, 
Niall, this is what I want my album to sound like. And he showed him a picture of little Richard in a red suit getting into a red Cadillac convertible. But what does this mean? Well, it means that the album is big, it's flashy, it's chromed. It means that it sounds modern, no matter what era you're viewing it from. It does owe a small debt to the 50s, and there was a 50s revival in the 80s. But this is, as always, as seen through a Bowie filter. It's really hard to be objective about some of the hits of this album because they are so overplayed. Is it good? I don't even know anymore. Image-wise, he's blonde. He's straight. He's almost normal. If you think about it, what could be more radical at this point? like running away from the circus to become an accountant. It's a very suave and glam normie, but it's normcore nonetheless. I'd like to share what Niall Rogers had to say about working with David and working with him on this album in particular. He says, The fact that David could take old songs and reinvent them in a new way gives you a great idea of how David Bowie saw the world. I call him the Picasso of rock and roll, he saw things from a different perspective. If I showed him a pineapple, he'd say, wow, that's fantastic, but did you see this? Even if we were looking at the same thing, he'd see something new. Talking about the track Let's Dance, he says, but then I thought about my songs and how they all start with the hook, because in the black world, we don't have many stations or chances to get a hit. You have to feed people dessert before the main course. So I said, let's put the hooks at the beginning Let's have the first words out of your mouth to be, let's dance. Niall goes on to say, My favourite story of those entire sessions was when we were rearranging the songs. At one point, I turned around and said, Hey David, did I make this song too funky? He looked at me and said, No darling, is there such a thing? I love that. It's the best answer he could have given, and I use it every time I can. Because of course, there is no such thing. If you make something too funky, then you've achieved nirvana. Is Let's Dance a funk record? Well, the record is quite funky, but it's a cold funk. It's not a hot and steamy funk. And there's a place for that too. I mean, people loved it, or at the very least, many, many people bought it. It took 17 days to record, and it was his biggest selling album ever. It's a pop album, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. It does sag in places, but on the whole, it does what I think he set out to do, which was make something big, flashy and funky and totally different to what had come before. The video for Let's Dance has held up really well. The 80s was an expansive decade for David Bowie in that on the back of this album he became very famous and commercially successful. This fame gave him the room to pursue his love of acting and by extension he was involved with various movie soundtracks in the 80s. Some diehard fans saw this as a betrayal of his outsider iconoclast stance but Come on, he was a Capricorn, clearly ambitious and open to mainstream success. This incarnation of Bowie is smiling, affable, stylish, sexy, and grown up. So back to the album, let's dispense with the hits first. Modern Love, China Girl, and Let's Dance. I can't be doing with China Girl, even though it is a very well-written tune. Anything that whacks on the pentatonic scale, the shorthand for the Orient, just irritates me. Let's Dance has been overplayed beyond recognition, so that just leaves Modern Love. On revisiting this album, I have to say that this is the song I liked least at the time, but I appreciate it the most now. There's Ricochet, which is David Bowie doing perhaps David Byrne or Talking Heads, or his version of. We've got Criminal World and Shake It. They've got some quiet charms there. We've got Cat People, 
with Giorgio Moroder, which is a solid track, but it doesn't really do much for me. I remember having this album on cassette and always fast forwarding or rewinding to the big hitters, which I would say usually indicates a weakness in an album. But now I feel like it might just need some time and that there is more low-key goodness in there. Perhaps an underrated album, at least critically. Let's move on to 1984 and the album Tonight. I once saw David Bowie on a chat show, I think it was Parkinson, and he said that as a child he would listen to the radio and was captivated by pieces of music where the notes didn't go the right way or broke his expectations. I think he cites Holst's Planet Suite, Mars, and also uh, Tubby the Tuba. And I feel like he's absorbed that and has used this device to great effect throughout his career. And it's this recurring device that saves the album for me, and that comes in the form of Loving the Alien. The chorus is killer. David Bowie said that the demo of this was great, and he didn't know quite how the final version ended up sounding the way it does on the album. Um, but that's the highlight for me, Loving the Alien. It's an amazing chorus. It is quite 80s production, so if you can get past that, all's good. There are no less than three Iggy Pop covers on this album purportedly because Iggy was down on his luck and needed those sweet publishing dollars. Iggy also contributes vocals on Dancing with the Big Boys, plus there's a Chuck Jackson cover, a particularly egregious going over of God Only Knows by the Beach Boys, and some inexplicable marimba. This is not a good album. It's not bad bad in the sense that the players are top notch, it's incredibly competent, but it has no direction. The cod reggae is lacklustre and doesn't work. It's simultaneously half-assed and bloated, yet forced and strained at the same time. Blue Jean is slightly more coherent, but sounds like it should be on less dance. It feels incongruous, like seeing a plastic toy in a shit. Oh, there's a nice little plastic toy in there. Ah, but it's still nested in a turd. What else have we got? Oh, Mark King from Level 42 plays bass on the track Tumble and Twirl, and we get a bit of Tina Turner on tonight, but to no avail. When it was released in 1995, they bunged three extra tracks on there from soundtracks that David Bowie worked on. This is not America, As the World Falls Down, and Absolute Beginners. This does improve things marginally, as two of these tracks are quite good. Once again, Bowie is light-fingered and wholly rips off Italian composer Oscar Rocci's composition much more from his 1981 album Video Dance. This is the basis of one of my favourite Bowie songs, This Is Not America. The original is worth checking out if you like that sort of 80s electronic thing, which I do, and you can see how Bowie takes something and makes it his own. I think that's called stealing. Anyway, David Bowie does Saturnine so well, and that's why I forgive him for this whole album. To round up our 80s segment, we have Never Let Me Down, 1987. By this time, David Bowie has fully embraced the mainstream. With this album, once you get over the shock of the late 80s production, then, well, actually, I can't really get over the shock of it. This is only seven years after Scary Monsters, and it sounds so middle of the road. It sounds like an album made by a 55-year-old, but Bowie was only just 40. There's a song about the homeless, about his longtime personal assistant. There's also a song about young girls. Oh, David. 
However, we could try reframing it. You might say, enjoy this album on a yacht with a glass of Australian Chardonnay, or perhaps pounding along to the beat on the steering wheel of your 4x4 as the sat-nav directs you towards a delightfully bijou B&B for your long-awaited mini-break. Outside of that, I can't really imagine listening to this all the way through. This really sounds like what it is. It's an album made by a very wealthy 40-something rock god. It really feels like something my parents would enjoy. It was conceived for a lucrative stadium tour. I even prefer Tonight more than this because this is just so safe. It sounds like a bunch of well-paid session musicians phoning it in. Take this, he starts off the 80s with Robert Fripp as his guitarist and he ends it with Peter Frampton. Glass Spider, which is one of the tracks on the album, is pure spinal tap. Mickey Rourke rapping on Shining Star is just bizarre. This record is out of touch. Maybe he's mellowing, or maybe he's just lost his way. He's very rich and very successful at this point. But where's the artistic angle? What is the point of this album? I suppose I should say that this record sold more than Diamond Dogs, Hunky Dory and Young Americans. My Say Something Nice is at least Time Will Crawl has a late 60s folk feel to it and there is probably a decent song in there under all the overproduction. And I remember reading a smash hits feature on misheard lyrics and this came up as time crawling to the 20th century lose and that has stayed with me all this time and therefore I have affection for it. Zeros is another song that I feel has potential. Apart from that, there's not much else. So let's talk about Labyrinth instead. In case you don't know, Labyrinth is a movie by Jim Henson that David Bowie starred in and recorded songs for the soundtrack. Now this, this is rock and roll. This was done the year before this album, 1986, and David Bowie is camping it up as the Goblin King in some hose. Some fans saw this as the ultimate sellout, proof that Bowie was done. But I see it as very rock and roll. He had a kid himself, He was looking to make music for a kid's film. He always enjoyed flexing his acting muscles and here he is, having a ball. When we were kids, we loved it when he boots the puppet in the music video for Magic Dance. And this is where you really feel like this is someone who can laugh at himself and not take the whole business of being a rock and roll icon too seriously. I love him for this. Well, this is where my bit ends, but the story is by no means over. We still have the 90s and the 2000s to go. I hope you'll stay with us. For my part, I'm so happy to have got through the 80s era without once mentioning Under Pressure or Dancing in the Street. Oh, fuck! Hello, welcome back. Um, hopefully you're still with us. You have listened to some good, some bad, and some very poppy David Bowie. Uh, total changes from, say, episode one. Um, we're going to do what we always do. We're going to talk through the albums, have some discussions. If you agree or disagree, there's a Facebook group, as you know. All the details are on beat.rehab. Temp fans. So, starting off with what some people consider to be Bowie's greatest period, the Berlin period. Um, Steve, I'm going to go over to you. Um, low. Um, was it a low? Uh, oh well, maybe psychologically for for Bowie and a couple of people around him. Um, but creatively, uh, I would say not. Uh, out of out of the Berlin period trio of albums, which of one of was only 
fully recorded in Berlin. Uh, my personal favourite is Low. Uh, it's very experimental. Uh, much like Heroes That Follows, it's uh, it's an album of two parts. And I think it's important that when we talk about these albums, that we talk about them as being vinyl releases with two sides on them, uh, because that's how the, the running order has pretty much been structured. And a lot of new listeners uh, that use Spotify or you know, even have a, a CD player or whatever uh, should understand that the, the, the ordering of the tracks is actually quite important to what Bowie or Bowie, should I say, was was trying to achieve. Um, so Low itself, uh, interestingly, starts with an instrumental, uh, which which is a little bit odd, um, but it's, it almost acts like some form of curtain raiser, uh, curtain uh, raiser for what comes next. Um, it's it's moody, it's ambient. You can tell the the influence of Eno instantly. Uh, but what it eventually feeds into uh, is m- much more typical of the first side of Low and. Um, let me just you've got to edit this bit. I mean, just on that, I mean, you said you can you can hear the the Eno influence immediately. Uh, something that we've already covered and we'll probably cover again is people like Eno and Visconti. Um, yeah. Am I right or wrong? This was was this the first time both of them had an influence in an, in one of the albums? Yes. Uh, they, I think Visconti and Bowie and Eno together. That, that trio really does bring what makes Low and Heroes and Lodger stand out uh, amongst all of pretty much Bowie's canon of work. Uh, a lot of people assume that Eno had uh, influence with regards to production. He didn't really. It was mostly Visconti you know, guiding them as per obviously how Bowie would want it to be done because, you know, Bowie... He, did like to have control, but in those two, he, he definitely trusted them. They, they brought new instruments, cutting-edge studio technology. They were, uh, Visconti in particular, uh, you know, he's a, he's a very, very talented guy. He's not just a producer, he's an engineer, he's a mixer, he's a musician, and he knew how to take what Eno and Bowie were trying to achieve, even if it was quite aloof and experimental, and he had the skills to turn it into something tangible, something listenable. Um, but again, another odd part about the way that the tracks work on low is that they're very short. There's not there's not a lot of long tracks on there. There's a there's a lot of very heavy fade outs, which I found quite surprising. Um, I'm, I, I do want to mention on this is one of my few notes on this before we move on. Um, one of the things I didn't like about low, and I love this album. I hadn't really. Uh, listened to a lot of Berlin before we started plowing through all these this, this entire discography. A lot of fade and repeat. Yes. I can forgive one song on an album for a fade and repeat. Two, I'm like, <laughs> after a while, I start to think it's a bit lazy, especially if your song is three minutes or two minutes 48, and the last 10 seconds is just Bowie just repeating and fading away. I, I don't know. I like songs to finish. Like, yeah, and what I mean, he's got he's got the craft. He can, he can finish a song. He knows how to write that. And what's interesting as well is the songs that fade out aren't necessarily, you know, they hadn't reached a point where they couldn't add any more to the song. Yeah. They just, for some reason, chose to fade it out. Now, I don't know if I know Bowie's Bowie's has a tendency to write verses and drop them. Sometimes he'll record them and then just cut them out completely. So I don't know if it was a, a result of the, the kind of mental state that he was in at the time, whereby he was struggling a bit to come up with characterizations and lyrics. And that, you know, basically, here's the music, here's the lyrics I've written for that music. 
there isn't anymore. We could continue musically for another 30 seconds or a minute, but as you say, they don't. They, they just tail it off quite aggressively. And in some cases it works, and in some cases it doesn't. So if you take the opener, the instrumental speed of life, it, it sets the tone and, and, and then it fades off and then we're straight into Breaking Glass, which is one of my favourite tracks on the album. It's got this weird electro-tinged funk stomp that goes on and it's just it just instantly hits 100 miles an hour and it hits all the right notes. But it's the shortest track on the album. It's 1 minute 53. So by the time you're, you're really getting the energy of the song, he's, he's essentially stealing it from you and then making you listen to what comes after, which is What in the World, um, which also follows the same trick of cutting off, you know, very aggressively at the end. Um, but it's probably not my favourite track on the album, simply because uh, Breaking Glass is beautifully put together. It's got a great beat. What in the World tries to kind of repeat that, but with, with a different style. But there's the the melody and Eno's constantly blippy overdubs on top seem to just chop up the melody of the song to make it almost to a point where it's not that comfortable a listen. And it almost sounds a bit more like a a fully fledged demo than an actually committed to, to tape track. Okay. Which I okay. Find a bit odd. Um, I think that there is that. I mean, I'm, I'll come back to you in a sec, Steve. Uh, I'm just going to move over to Zoe at the moment. Um, so Zoe, last time we heard Bowie, um, was, was the last one, was it Pinups? Station to Station. Station to Station, station. sorry. With Station to Station, he was, as Lyle said in the previous episode, heading full on into Berlin. Sonically, things had been changing. Um, can you hear the differences from previous stuff moving into the Berlin period, is it a a uh, stop stop start, or is there a lot continuing from the last stuff? I feel like it's a natural progression to me. It doesn't seem jarring for him to be doing this, and I have to say that Low is my favourite out of the three as well. And I really like this album, but. I'm a total Bowie dabbler. I'm not someone who has sat and listened to Bowie albums before until I had to do this podcast. So I, because Bowie for me is like, he's the the generation above me's kind of guy. So for better or for worse, um, it means that I have certain associations with Bowie. So part of the reason why I agreed to do this podcast is so that I could get an opportunity to go and listen to you know, the important work that he's done. Um, because after he died, I realised how special he really was. So I've got to confess that this really was the first time that I'd gone and listened to the Berlin period. And I did it very quickly. But Lowe seems very natural to me. It doesn't seem like he he's forcing anything or he's trying to be too experimental it, and I love it because it's a real mood piece and also when I was listening to it I did very much imagine how people would have listened to it when it came out which would have been on vinyl with two sides where you have to stand up and turn it over and you know what young people must have felt at that time and I can see why it's so effective and so very much loved yeah. yeah. And, Have I answered the question? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, you also touched on a point Steve made about the whole side one, side two. Um, Nick, um, what do you think of the big differences between, say, the beginning side one and side two? Because there are differences throughout the Berlin period. Some sides oh, are. Totally. I mean, side two, it's like it's like a pure Krautrock album. You know, it's just big atmospheric pieces. 
Um, so you've got the first side that's got kind of quite uh, catchy, more poppy kind of Bowie tunes. Um, that doesn't feel quite right, but something like that <laughs> compared to side B where it's, you know, these big synth pieces, which is very Eno as well. And I was while I was listening to it, I was thinking about something that I said in the previous podcast about Bowie having done all these different periods, uh, different styles that you work through, but uh, it was always recognizably Bowie. But then I was thinking this, a lot of this stuff that I really love, it's instrumentals. So in what way is it obviously Bowie? <laughs> Yeah, you know, this could be a Popol Vu album. If I said, I'm, that right. I'm nodding politely, but I have no idea what that last <laughs> reference was. Um, I mean, as I said last time, I know you're getting into your crowd rock. I, mm, side two throughout the Berlin period, sort of. Well, this and in Heroes was sort of where my interest waned a little bit. Uh, maybe it's because I've got used to now listening to things from start to finish. And by the time I get to the sixth song, if that's the least accessible stuff, I'm thinking, uh, maybe I'll maybe I'll go and do something else. Um, Steve, so on the second side, the the Krautrock side, the more instrumental, the moodier side, how do you think that holds up to more, the more... I guess side one is still aimed to be hits. It's still aimed to be... Yeah, and I mean, what what follows up is, is, is number three after What in the World is... And and for me, serves to show that What in the World is not that great a track. is Sound and Vision, which is an absolutely peerless Bowie track. It's it's astonishingly good. It, it starts with that three-beat snare, and it's the sound of the snare is, is a Bowie snare. That sound becomes, from that point on, becomes synonymous with not just this period, but even even later Bowie as well. But it is it's it's uh, it, it, it's a pure single. It's put together as such. His vocals on it. There's there's not the same experimentation there. There is the isolation, etc., on his vocals. But in comparison to side two or the B side, it's very very different. And what I what I originally wanted to say about the the, the contrast between side A and side B was you could kind of look at it as west side of the wall and east side of the wall. Now that that might be a bit, you know, pushing it a little bit, considering that the majority of the recording and the writing was actually done in France, and it was really only the, the mixing and probably the track listing, um, which was done at Hansa in in Berlin. So it could be that there was that mood that they came into it. You know, they had the music there, but but splitting it right down the middle with a with a, an almost imaginary wall, you do have these two very different sides of the record. And um, it is very, you know, it's very, very, you know. I mean, if you know, um, he hadn't done music for airports at that point. He'd done two albums. Uh, I think the first one was Another Green World. Mm-hmm. Um, he was obviously post-Roxy music, but it is very much, you know, Eno ambience. And, you know, as, as Nick alluded to there, where, where is the boy in this? If you buy a Bowie record, you expect Bowie. Fundamentally, Bowie is a front man and a singer. Yes, he plays instruments, etc., but he surrounds himself with different musicians. He's always the defining factor on a Bowie album, but he's not there. And he's not there for this, this little progression of songs that last, I don't know, what, 10, 15 minutes. So I can understand why RCA at the time really had a problem with this, mm-hmm. because they would be saying, no, where are you? Mm-hmm. But it doesn't, it, it makes the album. It really does. The, the 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 contrast between those two sides is an integral part of what makes it a great album. 
Um, I'm going to ask a question. I mean, anybody can answer at this point. I mean, we talked in the last part. I think Lyle covered it quite a lot about the the William Burroughs cut up technique, where he sort of write a bunch of lyrics, cut them up, move them around a bit, and he does this throughout a lot of his albums. Do we give him credit where credit sometimes isn't due? We listen to some lyrics and of most artists go, oh, yeah, I, I see what he means, or I can see what she means, I can see what they're getting at, I can see where they're going with this. But if there's this sort of random factor in play of, eh, let's see how this works, um, is there more of a serendipity sometimes that he, he lands on something amazing? Is it a genius to identify that? Um, or is there just we're occasionally going, well, Bowie knows what he's doing, right? Uh, I think it's a little bit of both, to be fair. I mean, the, this his approach to this album when he spoke to Eno and Visconti about doing it was that it really didn't matter what they came up with, if it was successful or not. He, he was just in a place where he wanted to do it. And I think what Zoe kind of alluded to earlier, you know, it, it, it still sounds like a Bowie album, but he sounds quite relaxed on this. He's, he's not overly edgy. Um, you can say the, a lot of the effects and the, the lyrics are, but he himself, I think he took, obviously coming back off the back of producing and writing The, the Idiot with Iggy Pop, he got himself to a place where he was comfortable enough to do the experimentation and not have to worry about it because he had so many other things going on in his life that were just breaking him down. His problems with his management, his massive drug problem. And um, he was skint. His marriage was falling apart. So it's almost as if this was a kind of sanctuary for him, that he was he was being allowed to do stuff with uh, and just ign- trying to ignore everything externally that was pushing on him. Yeah, no, I totally get that. Um, I'm going to move on towards heroes unless anyone has anything pressing they want to cover zoe nick steve i just want to mention the bass on sound and vision and how amazing it is because it sounds it's tight as but it sounds loose like how do you do that it sounds so yeah go ahead yeah it's also quite high far far forward in the mix as well it really really does drive that song all right yeah i love it Anyway. That was that was low. Um, it's, it's impossible. My brain is now going. That was low, which was more of a high. Um, but I liked low. I got into low. Uh, I found the second side a bit harder, but I was listening to it all the way through, back to back, while we we're preparing for this pod. I cannot say the same about Heroes. I have listened to Heroes all the way through once. I have started Heroes four times. And if there was a side two, that side would be pristine condition on Discogs in 50 years' time, and side (laughs) one would be listened to over and over again. I mean, I struggled with it. I really struggled with it. I don't know why. Um, Steve, why is this this different? Is it different? Is it just me? What was going on? Uh, structurally, it's very similar, but I think by this point, he'd already got Lust for Life with Iggy in the can. He'd been touring with Iggy, um, and he he was, you know, permanent in, in Berlin now. He, he was part of Berlin, so I think the, the, the influence, the imagery is much clearer on this album because it was literally right in front of him. He also had even more difficulties trying to come up with his lyrics. So he was really trying to extract 
influence from everything that was around him, be it the room that he lived in or what was out the window or the, the people that, that lived in the, the particular area of Berlin that he lived in. What I would say is Robert Fripp makes a big difference here. Now, in terms of the volume of what he added to this album, it's not massive, but his contributions seem to lock in what Bowie was trying to do with this album instead of the, the immediate experimentation of Lowe. So I think it was a lot more structured. He, he was in a place where he knew what he wanted to get out of the people that he had with him. And the people that he had with him, he'd been around for ages. I mean, it's basically the same backing band from station to station. They'd worked on the two Iggy albums, they toured. So in terms of a tight collective getting and producing what Bowie wanted, he had it. It was, it was perfect. But I will agree with you that it's not a perfect album. However, I don't think that's a bad thing. It's... It doesn't start with an instrumental, which is a good start. <laughs> when um, so you know the, the 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 record executives were at least going to get some of their some of their money back. Um, but uh, what's it open up on Beauty and the Beast? Now Beauty and the Beast is. Yeah, I was really disappointed because I thought it was going to be Taylor's oldest time, but no, it wasn't that at all. Well, he's done a lot of cover. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I was but very surprised though by the opening track because it's very strong, isn't it? Yeah, it's very aggressive. It's very in your face, quite frankly. I mean, I don't think anybody would as much in the way the instrumental and low is a bit of a surprise. I don't think anybody would have expected something as uh, aggressive and in your face as Beauty and the Beast to be the opening track to this album. Uh, but it works. It's it's a good song. It's very Robert Fripp. Um, it's one of those songs like many on the album where it's actually made up surprisingly, from mostly first takes. There, there, there wasn't a lot of repeat takes done. Uh, is, is the, that, the, I'm just going to jump in. Is that actually a, a thing? I mean, I don't know what Bowie's general uh, recording process was like. We've talked a little bit before about, you know, maybe in Station to Station, the band had to be ready to go. Um, some bands, they record over and over and over again till they get it just right. Some bands, three minutes, mic down, and they're gone. Generally, what, what was this a Bowie thing? Was he more of a, a perfectionist in the studio? Was he, let's get the live sound down? Was it more different here in Heroes or, or what? Well, I think it's a combination of several things. One of the main things being the, the studio itself. We're at a point, in, in particular, an example of this is, is quite well known on Heroes, where they, had, they only had one track left to do the vocal on Heroes. Um, so they, they used what Visconti refers to as a destructive editing technique, in that they recorded the vocal several times, but every time they re-recorded it, they had to record over the previous take. Wow. So they had to judge... You know, are you basically saying to Bowie, are you confident enough that you can, you know, better what you've just done on the previous three takes? And you listen to it, and he absolutely does because it's an astonishing vocal. Yeah, yeah. But there's yeah. also the other thing that because they were they were in Hansa, they were in Germany. For example, if I can't remember which track it is, there's one something that sounds like a cowbell, but it's actually Visconti with a fork and a one of the cans for the tape. Because they could have phoned up somebody to say, look, bring us a cowbell, but it would take two, three hours for, you know, whoever it was that was part of the studio that did it would come in and, and deliver it. And they were like, no, let's just find something and make do. Oh. So I think there was a, 
an approach in that we're going to work through this fast, we're going to work through this with energy, and we're going to do what we need to do at the time that it needs to be done, as opposed to mulling about, you know, well, we've got studio time, we can kick back until, you know, somebody comes up with this part or somebody comes up with this lyric. They just went for it. They really did. Yeah. Um, I mean, you talk a bit about Heroes and, and, and the vocals. and Yeah, he does seem to go for it. I mean, it does seem to be one of the first tracks that he seems to push himself. Like, Zoe, I might, I'm not going insane. You've got a history as a backing singer and a singer and a lead singer. It's singing, generally, yes. Do you know, my biggest claim to fame is I sang backing vocals for Bruce Willis's band once. That is, that was, oh, sorry, Die Hard, uh, a.k.a. Die Hard. That is a whole other pod that I really want to record. Right. Um, but in terms of, like, listening to, say, the track Heroes, um, in my, it, it, when I'm listening to my ears, he's belting it out. He's almost straining at his limitations. I love that. that. No, that's great. But I, to be honest with you, I don't like Heroes the song. It's not, it's not one for me. And I know it's much love. People love that song, but I, I do love the vocal. So yeah. to me, it's just, it's some, Heroes is kind of dirgy and it's too slow. That's what I think. My memory of Heroes. vocal. Yeah, yeah. Right, sorry, my, carry my, on. My, that's it, my memory of Heroes is much greater than listening to the song again. Um, it's listened to it again. I was like, ah, oh, okay. Yeah, he's belling it out. That sounds quite impressive. In my head, it was a much greater track. Um, I addressed earlier on about, when well, we all addressed earlier on about the, the two different sides and how I found the second side of Low more difficult. And also how I found the second side of Heroes impenetrable. I mean, was it Moss Garden and New Corn? I mean, how would you would pronounce? However, you would pronounce it. I, I can't. I mean, I tried. I would go Neukölln, but I don't speak German, so don't ask me. <laughs> um, Nick, I know that you like your craft rock. Craft rock, craft rock, kraut rock. Um, I know there's definitely a lot of more in this. Um, how are you with this album? Was this a progression you? I, I like it. I mean, I, I would go along with the consensus that of the Berlin trilogy, Low is the best one. Um, I think I'm the only person who didn't actually mention that when we were talking about Low, but I might as well say it here. So, but but also I kind of unfortunately tend to think of the Berlin trilogy almost like it's one piece and makes it difficult to distinguish them. But when I look through at the track titles on Heroes, there's like not much that I can identify from the track titles. Um, I mean, you get that quite a lot with the B-sides where they all just feel like one big movement of music and the titles hardly seem to matter, really. But, yeah, for me, this is just the one with Heroes on it. I mean, it's in the title, so it sort of gives it away. Yeah, um, so I just want to say that, actually, when I was looking at the three albums and thinking, right, I've got to get through this, I've got to listen to this... I looked at Heroes and I thought, oh, I reckon this is the one I'm not going to like. So all jokes aside about Beauty and the Beast, when I listened to it, I was I, I actually was surprised I liked it more than I thought I would. And I do think it's a good album. And I'd probably rank it second because the next album that's coming that we're not talking about yet, I'm not so sure how I feel about that one. But Point definitely, back. I think the vocal, and I want to go back to Heroes because the it's not just that he's belting it out, but there's actually a progression with his vocal. I think he starts off in, like, he, I think he might do an octave. So he goes, yep. you know, he, he starts off in, in sort of low octave, and then he goes to the next octave up for the next verse, or the last verse. And it's really clever what he's doing, and it's really powerful. Do you, do you know the story behind that? 
basically Transfer Studio is a, a massive studio. They used to record um, like symphony or 100 piece symphony orchestras and stuff in there. And when Bowie, or Bowie was doing the vocal, uh, he was standing in the middle of that room and there was a massive amount of reverb. So Visconti said to him, look, go take a break for half an hour. I've got an idea. Obviously knowing they only had the one track to do this as well. So lots of technical limitation. And what he did was he set up three different mics at different distances from Bowie. And he set up uh, gates, which are essentially triggers on the mic so that when he raised his voice, those mics would turn on. And the effect you get is that massive sound, his voice just getting ever, you know, it's not loud, it's just grander and the, the volume, the physical volume of it just increasing constantly. And that's where the signature sound comes from. It's that, it's Bowie controlling his voice in relation to those microphones and wow. those microphones allowing the capture of that. Okay. I, I'm picturing that in my head and, it, uh, and it, it totally makes sense. We've talked a little bit uh, on uh, on the previous part as well, obviously about Bowie's life and his influence and things that were happening. And obviously he went through a, a huge cocaine phase. Um, I believe when we were putting this together, Ben mentioned something about how, it was it cocaine, milk, and peppers? Red peppers. That, that, that was his legend. Um, <laughs> listening to Berlin period, um, and this might seem to be a lazy uh, sort of analogy, um, Lowe really sounded like he'd, he'd, he'd had a heavy night on coke, and he was being reflective in the morning. Hero sounded like he'd got stoned the next night and just started experimenting a bit, creating this really sort of slightly inaccessible side two. And then Lodger sounds like he's gone to the pub <laughs> the next day and he's having this sort of, oh, hello, I, I can do this again. Um, Heroes for me in the Berlin trilogy is 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 my least favorite. I, I don't know why. Maybe maybe I am just weak and shallow, uh, and I don't get it. But Lodger was a totally pleasant surprise. It was an album I had never heard before in my life. I don't think it fully works. There's some weird. Uh, there's lots of influences. Like I don't think the Afrobeat particularly works on on. on is it track two? African Night Flight apparently. Yes, sounds plausible. Don't think that worked, but I enjoyed it. There were there were there were there were tunes. There were songs. It harked back to Ziggy and looked forward a bit to the eighties. Um, am I a mental case, Steve? <laughs> uh, no, I think you've described it quite well. I think the the fundamental difference is that the the experimentation is pretty much gone. It's mm. you know he's he he knows what he wants. He knows how to get it. He doesn't he doesn't have to invoke anything to try and pull in any new sounds. He's, he's pretty much got the sound he's looking for. But one important thing to consider is that with Lodger, he was working on a quite a tight time scale and he was working between stages of the tour that they were on at that point as well. So he was, he was under pressure to deliver something. And I think that's why a lot of the structure of the songs is more traditional Bowie, so to speak. Um, but this, this, I mean, this, it is an oddity. If you look at the track Yassassin, it's it's a it's basically a reggae track with weird kind of Turkish embellishments on the top of it, and it's it's actually quite surprisingly addictive. Um, I want to touch on the reggae influence you said. I know that uh, Zoe, particularly coming up later, uh, some of the eighties, you have you have an issue with, uh, I think, as you put it in your introduction, cod reggae. Um, is Bowie going down this route here already, or um, is he is he taking influences and using them well, or is he going down the cod reggae route or, already? 
no and yes. To be fair, this album is always interesting. Whether I like it or not is kind of irrelevant. I, I feel that he keeps a certain level of musical interest up for me in this album. It's just whether or not I like it. I mean, compared to Low and Heroes, which Low and Heroes, I feel, are quite timeless sounding. Like if mm. someone said to me this was made in like 89, I might believe them. Whereas with Lodger, you kind of know it was made in the 70s. Do, do you know what I mean? It's just got yeah. that, mm-hmm. that feeling to it. So with that experimental stuff, it doesn't really matter if it's successful or not. It's interesting to me, but I'm really not big on that pod reggae thing. <laughs> um, Nick, how did you like the fact that this was more an album of songs? I mean, even quite late in the album you've got, was it Red Sails? You know, the, you, you've got tunes back. Yeah, well, Red Sails is still side one. Um, oh, is it? Because with that one, it sort of seems to anticipate, like, Adam Ant, maybe even Duran Duran, or something of those kind of... Did he invent new romantic? romantic? Probably. <laughs> It seems yeah, like it's a clean that you did. To Bowie. Yeah, I mean, but I mean, of the Berlin Trilogy, this is the one I know least. And the more I talk about it, the more I realise that when people say the Berlin Trilogy, I just think of love. And probably I need to spend a lot more time listening to Lodger to get to grips with it, because um, I don't know. I don't know it or not. And I, I mean, I've listened to it in the past week. And it's not the first time I've listened to it. But In that case, we're going to go back. We're going to go straight back to Steve. <laughs> um, <laughs> Steve, we talked about the side A and side B thing. Is there a clear delineation? With Lodger, or is it a bit less stark? It's it's very much the opposite of of uh, Low and Heroes. It's 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 a typical Bowie album from start to finish. Um, interestingly, at this point, he would would hear the influence of the work that he'd he'd done and the band had done with Iggy Pop on his first two albums, and the last track on Lodger, uh, Red Sails or Red Money, Red Money is basically uh, Sister Midnight from The Idiot by Iggy Pop, but with different, you know, half the lyrics changed. Mm. A trick he would repeat on Let's Dance, with, which we'll get to, obviously, by picking another famous you know, Iggy Pop track and reworking it to, to his benefit. I think the thing with Boy at that point is he'd, he'd done his experimentation, everything was falling apart, he knew he had to deliver an album to RCA. I think this was actually his last RCA album, unsurprisingly, given what happened uh, in, in the years up to this point. And that's what he did. He said, okay, you want an album, you want a particular type of album, you want singles on it. You know, you've got DJ and Boys Keep Swinging. And he did, that's what he delivered. Uh, and it, the thing is, it's, it's odd that it's included in the Berlin Trilogy because it was, it was recorded in Switzerland and mixed in New York. Mm-hmm. There's, there's nothing German about it, um, but it obviously still carries some of the influence from the previous two albums. But it, it is a very different album to what, what came before. So it's more like Bowie's back and we've got this sort of stepping stone album uh, moving in into the 80s. Uh, it was touched upon yesterday, that yesterday in episode one, uh, Lyle was saying that every album he takes a bit adds a bit more, throws a bit out, adds a bit more. There's always this constant thread going through. So if we're going to take this as an album where he sort of, there's a little bit of what he's done with Heroes, but he's come back to Bowie. Bowie's back. Um, surely that's a perfect time to move move forward, move into the 80s with uh, super creeps and scary monsters. Zoe. Hi. It's the other way around. It's scary monsters and super creeps, but I went on ah. against you. <laughs> 
it's a mouthful to say, isn't it? Don't worry about that. Uh, do you know what? I've, I've crapped on about these albums during the talking bit. So I'm really here to kind of discuss it with you guys. So, I mean, what do you think? You must have gone and listened to it. What do you think of this album? I really like super, super and scary creep monsters. I think, I I don't know, I listened to it. Um, I thought, fas- I forgot fashion was on there. I forgot how good fashion oh, was. Uh, apparently it was originally called Jamaica. Uh, there was, was a reggae thing again. Yeah, exactly. He had this little beat. He didn't know what to do with it. Wrote fashion. He's claimed since it wasn't, and the, what, the lyrics weren't supposed to be about violence, but he's got the lines like, uh, here comes the goon squad. You know, there's definite references back to totalitarianism and the fascism, which is a constant theme throughout everything. Um, I, I thought it was banging. Um, I think on the extra tracks we've got, there's an acoustic of Space Oddity, which is really, 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 really good. Um, and I know this, was this 80? 19, was this bang on 1980? This is 1980. I mean, it's kind of amazing, isn't it? Especially the opening track, because I think that is, I think I could say this about both albums, both this one and Let's Dance, is that they sound so modern. No matter when you're listening to it, it sounds really modern. So the first track, which is called It's No Game Number One, it's really really modern I, I i can imagine hearing this on a record that was released you know in the last 10 years so i think it's a great album i really like it too um but it is kind of it's not disjointed but it's kind of got two things going on it's got those like hits like fashion and of course ashes to ashes which are far more i feel like they've got their feet planted in the um 80s but the rest of it is still a bit of a hangover to the 70s if you know what i mean it's kind of like yeah. the remnants the, the the dregs there and i feel like this album's a bit of a hangover album it feels a bit scuzzy and, yeah, yeah. and kind of dirty and and you know a little bit strung out you see how about these both this and station to station sit quite comfortably with the berlin trilogy as a sort of piece of music they sort of seem to belong together like either side of that the music sort of yeah. somewhere else, but they can This yeah. doesn't feel a million miles away from that. I've got a massive soft, soft mm. spot for Ashes to Ashes because it's probably one of my earliest pop memories. Like I just I had, had a very clear memory and the video, the video on TV at, at my grandparents' house for some reason. That must have been maybe it was where I first saw it. It's there, lodged really firmly. Yeah, like, I mean. And, it- and, it was the most expensive video ever made at that time. They spent so much wow. money on it. It, you know, it's Just a very talking about on the beat with a bit of a filter on, weren't they? <laughs> oh, no. They knocked that out in a couple of hours now. What did they yeah, spend you the money on? Yeah, you charge a fortune for it. <laughs> but I think we have to remember that at the time it was very innovative and and yeah, like no, Bowie, no. Bowie always had an eye for the visual. You know, we know that about him. But I think it, it you know, it's kind of seared into the brains of so many people of that generation just from seeing that video because the image, the images that he had in there, was so strong. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. And I think before we, before I go over to you, Steve, I mean, the ashes to ashes. I mean, obviously Bowie then. <sighs> Half sends up himself, calls back to maybe the song that made him uh, re-referencing Space Oddity, uh, Major Tom, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Wouldn't it be the first time, nor the last time, Bowie looks back on work he's already done and references it? Um, Steve, we're moving into the 80s. Um, it's not quite the 80s Bowie that we get to love, hate, uh, forget about. Um, how do you think this album changed sonically from the last one? I mean, it's obviously more of a step from Heroes, but we talked about how maybe yeah. Roger was a stepping stone. 
Yeah, well, the interesting thing about Lodger is it sounds like Robert Fripp's on it, but he's not. It's actually uh, ex-Zappa guitarist Adrian, is it Bellew? Mm-hmm. Um, doing his best to sound like Robert Fripp. And Robert Fripp's actually back on Scary Monsters. So I think that does give it a little bit of a, a call back to what had come previously. But it, it's, for me, it's a very up and down album. It is a little bit hit and miss. Was it, I, it's, I don't think it's any great leap forward by any stretch of the imagination because we knew he could, he could write fantastic songs and he had the people around him to, to create them. Uh, and Ashes to Ashes and Fashion are just testament to that. They're you know, the two standout singles for anybody for anybody to do, not not just Bowie. Um, but it for me, it it does sit as a weird, you know, as I said, it's, it is kind of a bookend to the seventies, more than a a leap into the into the eighties. I think um, obviously, I mean, well, why not use now to move into the eighties? Let's move to megastar Bowie. Uh, let's move to Let's Dance, which I don't know about you guys. I mean, my. I would have put it down in the in the cheesy bin of history until I listened to it again. And I was like, this is a fucking great album. It's 80s, but it's not bad 80s. I mean, um, Zoe, you talk about uh, in your introductions or your creation about Nile Rodgers, and obviously this is the Nile Rodgers. The first of the Nile Rodgers albums. He does come back in the next episode. Um yeah, there's there's massive influences. Uh, it's it's got a funky beat. There's a bit of disco going through there. Uh, Let's dance is is a stonking tune. Mm. Uh, China girl is not. Uh, Modern love is much better than history uh, remembers it. Um, and it's it's a short album as well. I mean, I mean, we talk about like I mean, albums these days have so many different songs. It's like eight tracks eight tracks that made him a gazillionaire and a super a megastar everywhere. Um, Nick, I mean, I know you're a big fan of crowd rock. I don't know where you stand on the 80s. Well, the first um, time I listened to the complete discography was in 2016, just after he died. And um, I was coming off the back of the Berlin trilogy when we get went to the 80s, obviously. And at that time, that was when I really discovered the Berlin trilogy for myself. And I loved it. And I struggled with the 80s. Second time around, so this last couple of weeks, I've been listening through again. I actually quite enjoyed the 80s this time. I came at it, I guess, just different angle and different sort of mood. Um, I mean, I find it really difficult to process my feelings about Let's Dance because, um, again, I think a bit like Ashes to Ashes, it's kind of wrapped up in kind of early childhood nostalgia. Although it's not something I would have necessarily remembered as a favourite song or anything, but it's in there somehow as, as something, yeah, quite extraordinary. It's, it's an amazing tune. I, I don't know quite how you dance to it, though. Um, I'm, I'm going to ask, I know this isn't perfect for a podcast, but I'm going to, we're, we're recording it on Zoom. I want a quick show of hands. Who had this album on tape? Or tape or vinyl? Yeah, yeah, I did. My dad had it. Your dad had it. Yeah. I think my oldest sister had it. It's in the car. This is one of the tunes that's in the car when I was a kid. There's a bunch of albums that fall into that category. And um, some of which were quite good albums, some of which weren't. Uh, Steve... <laughs> Oh, sorry, Zoe. <laughs> sorry, I think I might have had it on vinyl as well. I think I might have had it on cassette and vinyl. And not that I particularly loved David Bowie. I just feel like it was the record that everyone had to have at the time because it was so big. It was just. Well, that's it. There were certain albums from, let's say, mid, 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 early to early through mid to early late. 
uh, 80s that sort of everyone had, whether they liked them or not. I mean, yeah. most houses in the, at the end of the 80s had brothers in arms by dire straits mm-hmm. at some somewhere in the house. It may have been a parent or a sibling, but it, it was in the house somewhere. It and was, think, yeah, you're so right. Yeah, this is one of those. This is one of those albums that was also uh, in the house somewhere. Steve, you did not put up your hand. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I didn't buy Let's Dance until probably the late nineties. I I have to disagree in that I. Is it a good boy album? It is and it isn't. Uh, I think there's a lot of for even a short album. There's a bit of dead weight on there. I think the important thing to understand is, though, it's probably his most American album since Young Americans. He's he surrounded himself with a very different set of people to make this album. I mean, getting Nile Rodgers in, you've, you've, and you've had Tony Visconti with the influence of Eno, and then you go to Nile Rodgers, who's just pure disco. Mm. I mean, the man's responsible for you know a massive number of hugely successful disco songs but it's the early 80s was bowie really trying to get into disco at the at the early 80s when it was you know it was it all pretty much already died off um but even the even the the players he's got stevie ray vaughan is the lead guitar player on this album um, at the time, not a lot of people knew who Stevie Ray Vaughan was, but what he brings to it is, you know, very different from what the likes of Fripp and Ronson brought to the album. But it's so very, very important to the sound that was achieved. And I think Niall Rogers needs to get a lot of credit for that because, yeah, he's a guitarist. He can recognise a good guitarist, but he could have taken the easy way and said, OK, I'll do guitar. But he got Stevie Ray Vaughan in and you, it fundamentally changed Bowie's sound. This was his new sound. There is a story, I hope someone corrects me if I've got the wrong album, I'm sure it's this one, but I think Nile Rogers said that Bowie came, Bowie came to him, was it you, you were talking on your, on your introduction, Zoe, about how Bowie came to him yeah, with, with yeah. a picture of Little Richard with a yeah. chrome yep. car. <laughs> chrome car. That was that his brief. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's right, that was his brief. I mean, he didn't say, you know, it, it sounds amazing, doesn't it, that you could just go up to someone and say, I want you to produce my album, it's got to sound like this. And then you show them a picture of Little Richard. But obviously they totally got it because I think it does sound like that. Whether you like it, whether you like the album or not, it is kind of big and it is kind of flashy and it is kind of, you know, fast. And American. And American. American, Yeah, yeah, through and through, yeah. I mean, we we talked on the last episode about how Bowie broke America sort of with young Americans, either having the word Americans in the title made it more popular or the, 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 the more transatlantic sound. And then this was the album that went from superstar to megastar. Um, and for some people, that transition just keeps going, gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And some people continue to sell records, although artistically, they start to trail off a little bit. I'm, I think people might realise where I'm going with this. <laughs> I know um, where you're going. We've, we've also looked at in the past how every so often Bowie seems to just phone in a covers album as well. The next album was Tonight. Mm-hmm. And that was, and this was also his phoned-in covers album. Kind of. I mean, there's a few covers on there. There's a few covers on there, and I think to be fair to Bowie, he was doing a very kind of nice thing for Iggy because I think Iggy wasn't doing very well, so he recorded three, three Iggy songs, and he got Iggy on the album to kind of throw him a bit of cash, you know. And that's a really kind thing to do. But does it make a good album? I think so. Personally, um, you like yeah, it. I mean, oh, but but loving the alien is great. I love that. I love that track. Yeah. So, but that's it. That's pretty much it. 
But having said that, I don't dislike it as much as Never Let Me Down. Well, we will get we will get to Never Let Me Down um, yeah. in a bit. Um, when I was doing research for this, and, and, I, and I listened to tonight, and then I read, we have various articles about Bowie and various things. A lot of them held up. God only knows this amazing cover version. Um, oh no, it's terrible. No, it's awful. It is. It's it, I mean, this worst. is a very. I mean, for any American listener, this will go over your head, but it's basically a north a working. Uh, working man's club northern club singer doing a cover version at a karaoke at christmas it is right. awful <laughs> awful stuff yeah i mean it was just it's, it's also a hell of a song to take on i mean you've, you've got yeah. to have some balls if you're gonna if you're gonna cover one of the beach boys greatest songs and deliberately decided to go from this sort of uh light uh beach boys uh vocal style to I never knew I'd miss you. Oh, Phoenix Knights, yeah. I, I, I burst out laughing when I first heard it, paused it, carried on laughing, went back and put it on. I was like, oh my God, David, please, 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 please. I think this confirms our point from the previous podcast that covers are not Bowie's strong point. He keeps doing them, but it's just not, it's not where he's good. I mean, we have, we didn't even touch on Little Drummer Boy uh, back in the, the the previous part when he, when he worked with Bing Crosby, uh, really? which I think was the first time I saw Bowie on TV when I was a child. And you've got Bing Crosby going, bub, 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 and he, and Bowie singing peace, peace on earth over the top. Um, every time, you don't know, you don't, if you don't, I have you no idea what that. you're talking about. This oh, is Bing Crosby, oh. David Bowie, Little Drummer Boy, it was a Christmas song, maybe 78? Yeah, find it. It's it. Um, I think Bowie looks really uncomfortable, and Bing Crosby looks almost dead. Um, tonight, Nick. Tonight, tonight. No, I mean I want to like it now. I know the Iggy Pop story, but I listened to it and I didn't. So there you go. Um, There's not much to not say. I, got, really. I, I really don't have much to say about it. Yeah, it's it's pretty. I don't know. It's it's of all the Bowie albums we've listened to right up until this point, the one I least want to go back to listen to again, with the possible exception of his debut. Oh, well, I mean, there's possible exception. I think there's one coming up. Um, Steve, I said up we... until now. <laughs> I'm not saying there isn't worse to come. Well, I think this is going to be the problem with, with doing a Bowie discography podcast is you've got all the good stuff, then you've got some okay stuff, then you've got some stuff that is really hard to talk about, and then you've got the, oh, yeah, we really like Bowie stuff towards the end um, yeah but we, we only have to listen to a couple of tracks from each album and even this you could probably muster a couple of tracks that wouldn't be too painful yeah. I mean, not loving the alien I don't know which ones you chose um, um, I can't remember actually I think I well, do you know what I did I kind of cheated for this one so I've got loving I've got loving the alien right and then they yeah. re-released I think they re-released tonight in the 90s mid 90s and they put some of his 80s soundtrack stuff on there so they put on um, uh, this is not America, and they put on Absolute yeah. Beginners, and the one from the, the you know the movie, it's an animated movie. I can't think of the name of it now. When the wind blows. So I think he did. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. He did, did a soundtrack for that. He yes, did a soundtrack for that. True. So they. Oh, they I, I, I couldn't listen to that. That was. I, I, that made me so frightened as a child. You can't uh, go back. Never yeah. go back. Um, Steve, before we move on to, to Bowie letting us all down, um, anything more to say on tonight? 
Uh, not really, although I think you've kind of set yourself up to have to put God only knows on now so everybody can understand how atrociously <laughs> bad it is. Well, that's up to Zoe. Maybe it goes on the, uh, on the playlist. Maybe it doesn't. Okay, so the final stage of the 80s for pure Bowie, uh, we're not going near Tin Machine for various reasons, was Never Let Me Down. Never Let Me Down, 1987. Did he let us down, Zoe? Did yes, he, let he, us down? he has. He, well, he's let me down. He might not have let you down. You might like this kind of thing. But for me, it's just... Um, this album, to me, sounded like a rubber palmer. Um, it was addicted to love. Times ten. But it's not uh, even like as great. But it's not even as good as that. Come on. It's like there's no there's no songs. The songs are weak. The production is like completely oversaturated. And yeah, it's just really average. But like I said, it sounds like what it is, and it's a very, very rich person. Kind of like singing songs about their personal assistant and homeless people and oh and young girls, very young girls. Yeah. That, yeah, that, 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 you know that, what I mean? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I think there's, um, I mean, with a lot of bands, more modern bands say, it's usually their third album where they can no longer sing about living in a council flat in Sheffield. Uh, they can no longer sing about, you know, living in rural Wales or whatever. It's, ah, oh, the record company. Exactly. And Bowie took a while to get there. Um, but when he mm. did get there, oh my God! Um, if there's been a song about having to charge, having your Amex declined uh, because you were in the wrong restaurant, I, I, I wouldn't be, be surprised. Um, this flopped, right? I mean, no, I mean, this, no, it actually, it didn't, it didn't flop. <laughs> it sold. I mean, I don't know how many copies it sold to date, but I think at the time it was like over a million, um, 1.8 million or something like that. that. It's, it's, no, sorry, I was going to say it's actually sold more than Hunky Dory, uh, Young Americans, and Diamond Dogs. So there you go. Wow. Yeah, yeah. It's really off his reputation. But that's yeah, yeah, exactly. He's Bowie, yeah. and therefore at that point yeah. he could shift units regardless. Yeah. Some bands right. get to a stage where they become. It doesn't matter. Like, I think now, like Depeche Mode could re release an album tomorrow, it will sell the same amount as the last one, regardless of whether it's any good or not. There's certain bands get to that stage. Um, I think Bowie was starting to critically. Everyone was turning on him by this point. Uh, I oh, think definitely. I read, I read somewhere that maybe the, the backlash from the critics to this album was what made him go and do Tin Machine and reinvent himself. So if there's anything else this album is... Critics have a lot to answer for, then. It's, it's two Tin Machine albums. I can't... I tell you what, I'll say that in this album's favour. It's not as bad as Tin Machine. I would sooner listen to this again than ever listen to a Tin Machine album. <laughs> truly, truly. Can I, can I confess? I've never heard any Tin Machine. Should I go and do that? What? I mean, I don't I'm understand. I'm conflicted on whether I should just say yes or, or, or save you the pain. I, I can't. Okay. Um, Nick, can. describe Tin Machine in one sentence. How could we describe Tin yeah, Machine? Well, the worst thing about Tin Machine is the guitarist Reeves Cabral, who some people think is a guitar superhero. I find him utterly unlistenable. He just kind of does this kind of wobbly guitar thing to the max over everything. Like, it's just look at me all the time over everything else that's happening. And maybe and without him, there's a good record somewhere in Tin Machine. I really don't know, but I find it utterly unlistenable. And he did it twice. I'm kind of intrigued. I'm intrigued now. And then Reeves went and joined The Cure and did the um, same thing for them. Um, the Cure oh, also have a Reeves Gabrell album. I think it was after Tin Machine. 
and it's all it's the same it's Bowie just, had right. Bowie had lots of uh, lots of albums uh, which will get covered on the next episode uh, by Jonathan Fisher um, Tin Machine Hangover Guitar Hangover Look, I'm going to yeah. move on um, this album would be a very bad way to end the podcast but no there's Labyrinth Zoe <laughs> yeah. it's also Labyrinth <laughs> Labyrinth? Yeah, Labyrinth? come on. Labyrinth hug? <laughs> Don't know. No, no Labyrinth either way, sorry. Um, if, if we were a really successful podcast, uh, we'd have a Patreon and we'd give you like bonuses like, oh, what's the Zoom call? There's a lot of people staring blankly uh, at Zoe and I while we try and get some. I, I know of Labyrinth. I don't even remember watching it, though, to be perfectly honest. Oh, it was brilliant. It was like, you know, proper Nick. Jim Henson. Yeah, yeah Nick, are like, you too young? Are you too young? Are you just that yes, little bit yes, too young? Yes, I'm, I'm, oh, I'm must too young. Be it. I'm probably yeah. the oldest person here, aren't I? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that's me. Sorry. Okay, well, we don't need to go into that on the podcast. But, uh, but um, no, I don't think it was because I was too young. I just, I don't know. Somehow it passed me by. It's just the Dark Crystal with right. Bowie in it, right? Pretty much. And, yeah. and songs. Yeah. Good songs. Very tight, um, tight uh, if I remember as well. Yeah, and Jennifer yes. Connolly, very young Jennifer Connolly. Oh, really? Played, played wow. Yeah. Played. Uh, but she was like seven at the time. I think it was like no. one of her first, no. her first roles. Okay. Um, shortly, we're going to wrap up. Uh, I have been told specifically that we are not allowed to mention. I'm just going to look at my notes. Um, the Vanilla Ice one and the one he did with Mick Jagger. Um, Bowie did lots of collaborations, uh, particularly, and two of his most famous ones would be uh, Under Pressure, which we haven't talked about yet, and also Dancing in the Streets. Um, I think it would be remiss of us to not at least give them a cursory glance before we move on. Steve, your finger is... Go is on, then. <laughs> and we, can we also mention Absolute Beginners? Because Absolute Good point. Oh, yeah, that for me, that's fine. It's, it's phenomenal. The funny thing is, all the, all the, all the players on Absolute beginners are the same people that played on dancing in the street which really? is just i find astonishing because if i was them i would have been like no you're okay i'm happy with that one i'll go so, now <laughs> so absolute beginners was what 84 86 somewhere in about the middle of 86 85 86 um when was under pressure earlier than that 82 and then obviously we had dancing. Well, no, I can time dancing in the streets because we were on our primary school fourth year trip to Borth in Wales, and me and my mates were singing "Dancing on the Beach." Uh, it was a hilarious parody. Don't that you? is so funny. Uh, we'll be. Pu- I believe there was a line. We'll be puking peaches across the beaches, dancing on the beach. Um, so that must have been around eighty-five. Eighty-five. Yeah. It was kind of. Was it for Live Aid? Yeah, yeah, it, it, it was. associated with Live Aid, but I don't know if it was actually... No, it was. It was for Live Aid. It was to raise yeah. Oh, little, yeah. little facts here. Um, do they know it's Christmas time? The part that was sung by um, Paul Young was meant to be Bowie, but he didn't turn up, so they gave it to Paul Young. Wow. I always wondered how Paul Young got, like, the first line on that, because I know he was sort of big in the 80s, but he wasn't that big. Yeah. Um all right, we have done uh, the Berlin period. Um, we have we have taken you through the 80s, dear listener, and there was some good stuff and some bad stuff. Um, hopefully, if you've just listened to this of a normal pod, you can go and ex- uh, explore the playlist. It's on Spotify, uh, search Temp Fans playlist. If you're listening to this on the playlist, what I'm saying now is totally superfluous. Um, we are going to come back 
with different voices uh, for part three, which will probably be about a week or two after this one, where we'll be going through the 90s without Tin Machine, uh, and then also going through the, the noughties um, up until Bowie's death. Um, Steve, thank you ever so much. Zoe, thank you ever so much. Um, it's been fantastic to have you. Uh, oh, no, no, no. I've literally written a big note. Before the end, must have Bowie impressions. So... Uh, <laughs> If you listened to the first episode, you would have you would have had a treat as Lyle uh, said something about there's a spider in my milk, um, and Ben Zimmer sang, sang Star uh, did Starman. Uh, Emily got out of it. Uh, Nick's still here. I'm not letting Nick get to at least episode three without some form of Bowie. But Steve and Zoe, you're going to go. Um, the reason we left it to the end is because Zoe's recording in sort of a shared space. And she, she feels that her Bowie impression needs gusto. And if she gets kicked out, at least we can do it right at the end. So, Steve, come on, give me a Bowie. First things first, I realised when I was practising this earlier that I sound like Dave the Dealer from Withnail and I. Oh, brilliant. Yeah, okay. All right, all right. He's like proto about it. I can do it. So, I, I can do an impression of him. <laughs> Put on your red shoes and dance the blues. That's sound like Dave the That is amazing. Nice one, mate. Killing and, it. Love and it. And Zoe. Look, do you know what? I'm going to go and I'm going to record it somewhere else because they are going to kick me out and I want to be able to come back. So I promise I'm going to go off and record it and I'm going to send it to you and you can edit it in, right? Oh, the yeah. anticipation now. Oh, fantastic. Oh, that was amazing. Wait, 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 wait. Three, two, one. That was amazing, Zoe. Thank you very, very, very much. Um, what so I might welcome. do is just leave all of that in and put Zoe's Bowie uh, in the end credits so you get something to listen to after the, the theme music. Either way, you've either just heard Zoe's Bowie or you're about to hear Zoe's Bowie. Zoe's Bowie. Didn't you get? Did, didn't you change your name to Duncan uh, Jones? <laughs> he did. He was Joey. Actually, he changed his name to Joey, and then he ended up going back to Duncan. So he's had like three names. But are we going to get to hear Nick's? Bowie yeah, Nick, come on. You know, I'm not doing it. <laughs> it's a point of principle now. There was there was a com uh, Nick and I had a conversation uh, WhatsApp or or whatever planning this. Nick was like, "Are you just becoming the silly one, and I'm becoming the grumpy bastard?" And I'm like, "Yep." Yeah. Pretty much. <laughs> um, okay, Steve, thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, Zoe, great, thank you very much. Great to see you again. Thank you. Uh, Nick. Welcome. It's been fun. And you'll hear Nick's voice doing the outro after this. Bye. 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 If you should fall into my arms, tremble like a flower. We made it to the end of Bowie Part 2, and if you're still listening, so did you. Thank you for joining us on the journey so far. It just remains for me to thank the contributors, who on this podcast were Zoe von Hess and Steve Miller. As always, thanks to my incorrigible co-host Ewan, and to Jonathan Fisher for the wonderful theme music. We also use a bunch of other tunes for musical beds, the credits to which you can find on our Beat Rehab page at beat.rehab slash tempfans. So, we've just got one more episode on Bowie to go, and that will take us through the 90s right up until the release of Black Star, early in 2016. If you've enjoyed it, tell everyone you know, and I hope you'll join us next time. I'm Nick Hilditch, and my mother said, to get things done, you better not mess with Major Tom.